Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, changemakers, and agrarian trust collaborators. Welcome to Commons Groundswell. I'm your host, Natalie Ashker-Sievers. In this episode, I speak with Jermaine Jenkins of Fresh Future Farm in North Charleston, South Carolina. We discuss her journey with land tenure, the effects of gentrification on communities, the relationship between land sovereignty and food sovereignty, and the exciting next chapter for Fresh Future Farm. So can we start by, um, do you mind just introducing yourself and saying your name, you know, the name of your farm, where you're calling from? My name is Jermaine Jenkins. I'm co-director. I'm one of the co-directors at Fresh Future Farm in North Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm calling from my house today. Awesome. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about yourself? What can I say about me? Uh, <laughs> um, I, um, I guess co-founded Fresh Future Farm in 2014, kind of as a a response to, I think, the gap that I saw in like food sovereignty for people like who were working and um, and wanted more options that were available, I guess, through like human services. So um, started Fresh Future Farm. It became a family affair. Um, I have um, children and, you know, like, who are mine biologically. And then like our family has grown with the other team members that work at Fresh Future Farm. So um, I guess it's just uh, Aquarius stuff. <laughs> yeah, but just just um, taking, taking, you know, an issue that I saw like impacting my family and my neighbors and doing something about it. So, you know, um, Fresh Future Farms, like a, 0.8 acre urban farm and grocery store, like a few minutes from where I live. So did you have a background in farming? How did you decide to take that initiative on? It's a pretty big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had no background in farming actually. Um, and just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm my 52nd birthday is coming up. And when I was in my thirties and first moved here to, to go to culinary school, I just, you know, brought my young children with me and we immediately like had a need for food. So kind of got hyper-focused on how do we feed ourselves while I'm learning about like food service management and all this stuff. So, um, you know, just through some friends and people that I've met um, over the years, learned how to farm uh, because I moved here in 2000. By like 2006, you know, I was work, got a job as a nutrition coordinator for the Low Country Food Bank here. And then um, just really got interested in growing food as a way to um, have people who've been pushed to the margins have like some control over what it is that they eat. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, like thanks, you know, so many like mentors of mine enough primarily um, Will and Erica Allen at Growing Power in Milwaukee, went to commercial urban agriculture with them in 2014 and started Fresh Future Farm the same year. Wow. That's inspiring. Yeah, it, it sounds really 
almost full circle, you know, that you have that culinary background and then working in food banks and nutrition and then to, you know, start putting your hands in the dirt and then, you know, gr- actually growing the food for your community. Yeah. It's really special. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. But yeah, you know, all of these, these, um, I guess not seemingly random. They're intentional because I had interest in these things. Um, you know, like um, came from a household with you know, where my parents were excellent cooks and you know, wanted to kind of emulate what they were doing and just, you know, like what, like what role could I take to ensure that my children and other people's children had like quality food to eat at the table? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to that in a little bit, but I want to ask you to share some the story about your experience with Fresh Future Farms um, journey with land access and um, tenure. And can you share a little bit about that? Well, um, you know, as I said, um, Fresh Future Farm launched in 2000, early 2014, before we even had like uh, property to start, you know, growing food on. And it was later that same year, um, that a mentor of mine, like through this, um, uh, kind of feeding innovation competition that happened here. Like we approached the city of North Charleston where we live, you know, and I, I went to the meeting with the site map because based on what I learned, you know, there are all of these different, um, conditions that had to be in place in order for like the food endeavor to thrive. So, Went to the city, you know, they identified like um, part of a almost four acre lot, you know, that we've been on since 2014. And, you know, we started with a one year lease that got changed to a five year lease. And we've had a couple of extensions and then, you know, attempted to um, acquire title, you know, by purchasing the land and raise the money and everything but unfortunately we have not been able to um seal the deal Mm -hmm. and so you wow so you created this whole campaign you raised all the money that you needed to purchase this land and it they just won't the city won't sell it to you that's what you're saying um, that's exactly what I'm saying. The city of North Charleston's vision for that particular neighborhood does maybe like we don't jive with whatever that is going to be. So, um, and, and historically, um, the core Cherokee community was predominantly white. And if, and that's, um, after, you know, the Casabo Native Americans were there and then wiped out, um, it was a predominantly white neighborhood, like the old Navy base was part of the plantation that started there in the early 1900s. And as the Navy base started to shut down, the neighborhood started to, um, I guess there was a lot of white flight, um, but it was it was like one of the most prosperous neighborhoods, you know, back in the day, you know, now, then it was predominantly black and transient where it had been um, folks who, own businesses, own their homes, you know, just like a rich, like environment, movie theaters, five grocery stores, all everything that you needed to thrive used to be in the Shakura Cherokee neighborhood. And as, like I said, the Navy base, which was the largest civilian employer in the state, as that started to um, fold, then all that wealth 
you know, all that, um, all those amenities went away as well. So, you know, what we, like the experience that I have with this part of the Southern end of North Charleston and, and, um, and Shakur Cherokee neighborhood is that, you know, where there were businesses, now there's human services and stuff. So there's not industry or anything really to help the folks that are renters um, get all that they need to support their families. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and there's a lot changing. So you've described a lot of change in the neighborhood where your farm is, is, based out of right now and mm -hmm. i understand that it's changing a lot even right right now oh yeah you know like what like i moved to charleston when i was going to culinary school johnston wales that was in downtown charleston lived a block away in public housing and stuff and it took maybe like 10 or so years for um downtown Charleston to flip from predominantly black to predominantly white, it's taking way less time for that to happen in North Charleston, where mm -hmm. rents are more affordable than they are in places like downtown Charleston and, and um, a nearby suburb, Mount Pleasant. So, so a lot of people um, like who worked at the farm, um, like people we've wanted to hire, and even like team members, all of whom like lived in North Charleston when they started have been, if they, if they don't own their homes, they've been displaced. Okay. So essentially gentrification has forced much of the community that you're serving and even the people that were working at your farm, pricing people out basically. Yeah. And, um, and it's, and I guess, you know, like that, um, that, wave the ripple that started in Charleston has made every kind of community I think within like a 50 mile radius of here more expensive mm -hmm. so you know you know I, I I wonder like where do they expect working class folks to live you know what in the ocean you know are we gonna live on boats or something because even like the rural communities are gentrifying so um I don't see and I think there was a question that we were going to discuss there that the the link between food sovereignty and land sovereignty is strong because you uh you know like I moved here and because we owned our home um and it and you know home ownership generally is more affordable than renting an apartment anywhere um we could focus on building out food if you don't have a, a stable home then how could you know that's that's your primary concern and you know if if ideally um your housing cost should be like a third of what you spend each month when and that's not the case people are like stressed around here and we we you know have you know customers coming in telling us you know that you know their landlords just sent them a notice that they're going to go up on rent, not by $10, but by $200 a month. So how, how is somebody supposed to, to um, bounce back or um, sustain mm -hmm. when they get that kind of news? Yeah, that's a really big jump. So to just to follow up about, you know, where we are, um, I read, or maybe you told me that North, North Charleston has, one of if not the highest eviction rate in the country yeah. and um and so to get back to that question about that relationship between land sovereignty food sovereignty 
how does that high eviction rating rate how does that how does that impact your community and and your work and the the farm what the farm is doing trying to do it you know the whole idea you know or part of the idea of fresh future farm was um building something that supported a walkable community right so you know um the way i think that we you know as like first time homeowners were able to like sustain is you know growing our own food and then just reducing our expenses and using that as a way to kind of um build wealth right so if you live close to where you work then you don't have the same like uh, fuel expenses with cars and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, like uh, what we didn't anticipate was the rate, the the rate at which gentrification in Charleston, which is also one of the highest gentrifying um, cities in the, in the country was going to impact North Charleston. And that, you know, has made it super tough for us um, as a team to, to like do all that we wanted to do um, with community members as leaders in like a food justice work. So, um, you know, I think like in the last couple of years, we've had to like, as a nonprofit, like raise um, a whole extra set of funds to support like stipends for people to be stay in their houses. We've had to, you know, like um, do work around increasing like uh, salaried pay so people you know, can stay and afford apartments, which, you know, when I moved here in 2000, you know, uh, an apartment downtown was maybe a thousand dollars. Now apartment downtown is over $2,500, right? And the same thing is happening like in North Charleston and other places where um, there, you know, there've been articles written about teachers who couldn't afford to live in the schools district because of the high cost of housing here. So um, saying all that to say that, you know, we, I never thought that we'd have to tackle housing when we tackled food justice, but um, you know, this, the plan that we set mm -hmm. um, didn't work because of that mm -hmm. or isn't working without us figuring out housing as well for our team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a very clear demonstration of the relationship between all of the, you know, the ways that all the different industries and parts work together. All of these things don't happen in a vacuum. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, as you know, we're talking about land prices and um, rent and everything, you know, as land prices continue to skyrocket and land is lost to developers, suburbanization and corporate farm and land real estate investment. Why is it vitally important that we reclaim or create new pathways for black and brown land ownership and stewardship? Um, we were like doing or 
uh, I found out like a few years ago that the the closest the black and white folks have been economically was around um, the time of the civil rights movement, and it's just gotten worse since then. So, um, you know, the great equalizer was land. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that our, our parents had, you know, back in like the, or depending on how old you are, your grandparents had back in like the, the you know, ni- early 1900s, the same time, like the old Navy base was taken off, land ownership was at its height for black and brown people. And we we're at the opposite end of that spectrum, you know, like right now. So, you know, there's like less than like 2% of land in the country owned by um, folks who aren't white. So you can't see that and not understand that like the 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 wealth gap mm-hmm. is fed by that um chasm, right? Mm-hmm. So in order for, you know, us to get the the wealth that our grandparents, our great grandparents had, we have to get back to the land. In order for us to get to the health that we had, uh, when, um, you know, like I've heard so many times that, you know, there were people who did not even realize that they were poor because they never went hungry because they had land where they could grow their own food. They had, you know, neighbors that they could barter with. So, so everything that you needed um, was available to you through your land. And now, you know, most of us don't have access to that. Um, mm-hmm. And we we um, are in a place where, you know, like generationally, each each um, descendant is less well off than the one before. And that wasn't the case um, mm-hmm. or that isn't the case for white households. My family, like a lot of other families who you know, at the the low end of this wealth gap, you know, bought into the illusion that buying a house would build wealth for us, right? So we bought this house in 2007. You know, I was saddled with student loan debt that I couldn't pay, was always in forbearance. And we lived here for 11 years. And when my eldest child got ready to go to college, our land, you know, our house did not have any equity in it. So um, they ended up in this in a similar student loan debt situation as me. And that's what I'm talking about, where um, generationally each descendant is worse off than the than the um, previous one. And also to the to the thought or the notion that um, if you do all of these um, like band-aid fixes, like buying a house in a, in a neighborhood that didn't have any infrastructure to support and like add value, I guess, to the, the homes and stuff. And even um, I've seen where, you know, when it's supposed to be a seller's market, it's only a seller's market if you were white. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I've seen so many instances where like black friends and family have gone to sell their homes and got less than what it would have been that va- what is supposed to be value at because they're black, no matter what the condition of the house is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we have a nightmare situation where some people that I know um, sold their home 
like during this pandemic, it's, it's, it's a perfect storm, right? Uh, people sold their home in the pandemic and weren't able to purchase a new house because, you know, like of the, you know, the higher rate of housing stock, you know, it just, it just went through the roof, you know, mm -hmm. during the pandemic, everybody was, I guess, using whatever, who could, were using their resources to um, renovate their homes. And then it was just, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous and mm -hmm. unfair. And then, um, I, you know, I lived in a neighborhood that, you know, like had no value where my house had no value for, you know, like probably like 12 or 13 years. And now because of gentrification, it has value, but my neighbors are, instead of people are Airbnbs and everybody who lived on the street that was running a house has been displaced or is being displaced. Wow. And so, I mean, and this is happening all over the country as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, something that I think isn't maybe like common knowledge <laughs> to most people is how this wealth gap it can be traced all the way back to to the the inequities in land ownership. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's lots of different pieces to that, but you know, but this piece that we're you know this is a podcast for agrarian trust, you know, we we're doing land access work. And um, so you kind of touched on this before, but just to recap and, and you can add whatever you want to this history, but just to be very clear, black land ownership peaked in 1910 at mm -hmm. around 14 million acres of farmland. Um, some reports I've read are even up to 20 million acres. I'm not really sure where that that really landed, but you know, 14 to 20 million acres, and then steadily declined due to a century of racist federal farm policy. And there's a lot of important history that leads us to this moment that we're in today, where 95% of farmland is owned by white people. Um, but I'm wondering, like, can you talk about that relationship to the lasting repercussions of that? Like, I just think there's like such a disconnect in the general public's understanding of like why this, this wealth gap exists. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know. Well, I, I'm, I'm just going to give you some keywords or keywords for your audience to look up. Redlining being the first and that, you know, um, when, you know, folks, you know, black and brown um, indigenous folks are interested in buying homes, right? the only ones that are available to them because, you know, a predominantly white neighborhood would not accept you as a homeowner are redlined. So it's, it's near difficult or, or impossible to, to be able to have a house that had value in these places and, and didn't keep up with the value of a home in a white neighborhood. Um, but then there's also um, what happened with the GI bill. You know, I learned this um, from Leah Penniman that, you know, of all the tens of thousands of people, you know, who were able to, um, predominantly white people who were able to build, start to build wealth for their families through that GI Bill, um, there might have been, she, I, I can't think of the number, but I know there was less than a hundred black people that were able to buy a home through the GI Bill who were um, military families, so. Wow. Um, there's always 
<clears throat> been a disparity, like with like wealth and um, land ownership and um, things like this, things that, that the USDA was doing to um, systematically remove um, independent farmers from their property. All of these like things have come together to um, get us to a point where, you know, like uh, land ownership is a predominantly white um, it's a predominantly white, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Landowners are predominantly white, period. I want to ask, so when we talk about stolen land, which I'm talking about um, stolen land from Black farmers in the Black community in particular, I know that stolen land from Indigenous people is a, is a completely different topic mm-hmm. of, equal, of equal importance. Um of course, we're referring to the physical land that was stolen, but there's also the connection to land and mm-hmm. all that comes with that. And I'm wondering, in your liberation work, what does Fresh Future Farm, uh, what role does Fresh Future Farm play in connecting people to the culture and traditions and all that's wrapped up in a relationship to land? Um. Well, I'll I'll compare it to. Um, a cell phone, right? You know, there was a time when in order to make a phone call, you had to remember numbers or write them down, um, you know, to be able to connect yourself to the people and use, you know, a phone that was connected to a a jack in your house, right? And if you're now because of cell phones, we are not connected to our, I don't even know my own mother's phone number without the assistance of my phone. And when all of those numbers are wiped out, then you are like left in a place where you don't remember or um, anything. And then you're, you, you don't, you know, you're helpless, but what's happened, I guess, in um, us losing land as a, as a people, as black people, is that we have lost all of that cultural, those ancestral conservation and farming practices that, you know, were part of our DNA. That's the reason that we were kidnapped and brought here in the first place because of our agricultural acumen in West Africa. So um, like what Fresh Future Farm has been able to do is like make the connection between um, like the food that you get at the grocery store and we have a grocery store at the farm, but how that was connected to like indigenous wisdom, you know, from like um, Native Americans and from like uh, um, enslaved black folks. So. You know, and we do that, you know, just through the way that we grow, like using, you know, ancestral practices, you know, resisting like the use of chemicals and pesticides as we grow, like just using like what was as much as possible what's around us to be able to produce like food and create a space that looks like a tropical, it's a tropical setting in the middle of a, um, of an urban space. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and that I think is what astounds people most about Fresh Future Farm. You know, it's less than an acre, but when you're standing in the middle of it, in the middle of the farm, in the middle of the summer, you don't know that you're in the United States. Mm. Can you paint a picture for us? Um, well, like if you're, if you're like coming like into like May and stuff and you walk, 
like on into the ramp from the community center, like go go the back way around the farm. You're seeing pears. You're seeing and, and smelling like um, these Meyer lemon and Satsuma buds that smell so magical. And right across from it is a mural of the history of the Shakura Cherokee neighborhood from when the Cassava Native Americans were here and all of the um, ways in which like black people um, played a part, you know, how like there used to be a Krispy Kreme um, donut shop right up the street that it was a thriving neighborhood. Um, and, and our hope when we started was that it could be again. But um, you, you go around the corner into the store, you know, we took a, a modular building and turned it into a grocery store. And then you look out of that front um, door window and all you see are banana trees, like lush annual crops, like uh, bell peppers, um, onions, garlic, and then there's blueberries, blackberries, um, loquat. Um, what else do we have? And in like bananas everywhere. Sugar cane's starting to come back up. Mm. So it's just, it's the greenest green you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me what the space, what the community farm has meant for the members of the community. It, it's it's meant a lot um, to community members. I'm wearing like I, I I have been worn a watch in like twenty some years because I used to break out for some reason when I was a younger person. But this watch that I love so much because it's like the color. <laughs> a name, uh, one of our customers like got us, got me this gift and it has my name on it on top of that. We, you know, we get gifts you know, from um, our, our uh, customers, you know, the kids in the neighborhood, you know, feel safe enough to ask, you know, for, for work. Um, this, this is a place that they know that they can come and get snacks after school, whether they have the money to pay for them or not. And a place where, you know, like, I feel like if the only thing that we are supporting you with is groceries, then we, we haven't built the kind of relationship that we want with our, our neighbors. So, you know, we do like hear all, you know, like folks excitement, their fears, all of those things. And what we try to do, you know, as an organization is support them in whatever way we can beyond um, high quality um, groceries. I want to ask you about the future of the farm? You mentioned that maybe you're expanding. And um, again, mm -hmm. if, if it's something that, that you want to talk about. Well, no, we're, we're going to announce it in late January. So we'll, okay. we'll have, it will be public knowledge by the time this comes out. Okay. But um, yeah, um, you know, because we haven't been able to like acquire the property that we have in North Charleston, you know, we have, um, we, you know, we get, we're going to, we're going to expand. 
our work. And the first phase of that expansion is building out like a 20 acre orchard um, in a rural space. So um, yeah, that's our next phase. And it's gonna just, just from the, from what we were able to do with a vacant lot in North Charleston and turn it into a working farm and grocery store, we know that like 20 acres is gonna take us a couple of years um, to actualize. So um, our hope is that we can stay, you know, like where we are in North Charleston. And as we kind of build out the infrastructure um, there, you know, we have a home base right now where we can still sell, um, you know, like chemical free produce um, and value added items to people. So um, it's, we're, we're going to be stretched a little bit um, this year coming for sure. So you're going to, you're going to stay in North Charleston and you're going to expand um, on a larger swath of land that, mm-hmm. that, that will then help you essentially be able to feed more people? I mean, is that? Um, you know, like long-term, like once you know all the systems are in place, we'll not only be able to feed more people, but we'll be able to employ more people because of the, the revenue that we generate from the, the food, mm-hmm. or um, specifically the value-added products that we make. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And how, um, I guess I'm just curious a little bit to hear how, you know, what that, you mentioned that a lot of the community that you originally, you know, you started Fresh Future Farm to serve these people. And you, you know, really have described the changing landscape of North Charleston. And I'm wondering, like, how do you, how do you continue to, I mean, that's a big question, but yeah. Um, well, you know, we we're looking at you know models that we've seen in other places, um, uh, to continue to support. And because you know we love our neighbors so much, you know, we are North Charlestoners, like doing work for like our neighbors in North Charleston. We did everything that we could do to stay. Um, and um, unfortunately, we we were in a situation that not only did we not were we not able to acquire the land, but we've been on a month to month lease since October, 2020. Um, And we recently asked the city if we could, you know, like revisit purchase or longer term lease and and weren't able to make it happen. So. Yeah, that that's um, as a farmer, I mean, what is that? What does that mean for you as a farmer who is on a month to month lease? You know, I'm sure that there are people listening that are in this situation um, or others that are shocked by that situation. Um, well, you know, um, it's meant that a lot of the initiatives that we've wanted to implement, um, people like that we've wanted to hire, we we just couldn't do it because we don't know if um, if and when an eviction notice is going to come. And prayerfully, you know, because of, you know, the I think we've shown like over the years and we're this will be our ninth year in operation that we love North Charleston and we care about our community. So, you know, we can stay as long as we're able. But, you know, um, 
also knowing that, you know, like we could be kicked out at any time. Um, you know, just, the, just you know, the, the personal stress of the team because our livelihoods are here, but also, you know, for like the people who like view the fresh, you know, Fresh Eater Farm as more than an urban farm, more than a store as an extension of their family, like who, you know, they, you know, supports them when, you know, through pandemics, through illness and all of these things, I, you know, like, you know, just kind of the things people say, like, you know, there is somebody who said that they would die if we weren't there. Um, Uh, I, I, I can't express to you like how difficult, um, this is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how tough it's going to be like if we have to go, but we'll do everything within our power to stay. But, um, you know, a month, a month, a month lease is, is no guarantee on longevity. And we're, you know, like our intent with Fresh Future Farm, like the way that we grow, the way that we support, um, our community members is to to do work that leaves a legacy that extends beyond me. You know, I started off as a, a executive director and now um, share director duties with like two of our team members who are in their twenties. And you know, prayerfully they'll like you know like uh, we'll bring on more people and just expand this leadership so that you know um, Fresh Future Farms mission like continues to meet the needs of whatever community we support and that there's this long line of leadership and legacy um, that comes out of this. Mm -hmm. Can you tell a, a little bit more about what kind of legacy, you know, what that legacy looks like that you hope, you know, sustains yeah. for, your, for your children, for the next generation? Yeah. Well, you know, the, you know, the legacy um, for me, it looks like um, like young people, you know, and I talked about my you know granddaughter who's four. When she's 54, you know, like they won't have to like read a book about how like black people own land and fed themselves. They'll actually live in communities where that's taking place. And it's going to like take support from people um, uh, buying land and then giving it back to black people in order for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Or if you got land, you know, give it back to black people. Absolutely. Um, you know, on that same note, what does Fresh Future Farm need to mm. be to th to continue to thrive and grow in the direction that your organization wants to? Well, you know, I'll be honest in, in the same way that you know like wealth the wealth gap exists um day to day it also exists in um in nonprofits you know de you know because the folks who are writing the checks tend to look like the people that they're writing the checks for so in order you know for fresh future farm like to do a you know, livable wage in order for us to um like make all of these support systems this you know rapid um you know, these rapid funds, you know, during COVID and all that, that, that took a lot of donations, you know, like we have like had some really cool corporate, corporate 
support, individual support, you know, like in South Carolina and around the country to help us do these things. And that's going to have to multiply because um, if we're on less than one acre, 20 times and more for us to start in a vacant lot from scratch. So um, we'll have a wish list on our website that people can look at to see, you know, what kind of monetary and in-kind donations they can make. But we'd also love to... Um, to partner with corporations that have the same values as us, like as we build out like this new space, um, you know, sponsoring different pieces of that work so that we can continue to support um, North Charleston and um, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell us, I'm sure the website, um, where can people go online to do that? Yeah, well, our website is freshfuturefarm.org. We'll also like make information available um, through our social media, all with the same tag, Fresh Future Farm. Okay. Um, I want to ask just la- one last question. When you look back at the last nine years, what are you most proud of, of all the wonderful work that you've done? There's a thousand things that I'm proud of. And, and actually, <laughs> there's, there's a tie. <laughs> that we've been able to, you know, build leaders out of community members and, you know, like folks have a voice and two, that the food is just as astounding and delicious to people today as it was when we started growing. So uh, <laughs> those things. That's great. I know it's so easy to like, there's so many uh, challenges, challenges and you know, things that make it hard to move forward. But like looking back on your wins, you know, and the amazing work that you've done, um, I hope that you're so proud. Well, you know, I, I could not have done it without like this incredibly smart like team that we have and like all the volunteers, the donors, our board members, you know, especially this this like badass last crew of board members who like, you know, really like have my back, you know, all of these things came together for us to be in a position where we're going to expand no matter what. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to watch the, the work that you all will continue to do. Thank you so much. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more about our work at agrariantrust.org.